Okay, so we're going to um, start a new series this Sunday where we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to do that for, um, I, don't know how, I don't know how long. We're going to do this until we run out of steam. <laughs> until, yeah, two years. Man, we could. We could spend two, two years on the Beatitudes that we're going to try and rip through today. Um, but uh, when, when we moved up here to start this church, uh, I really wanted this church just to, to love Jesus. And uh, when it comes to what we preach on, I want us to try and stick to the words of Jesus as much as possible, just to really mine the truth of what Jesus says. Because there can be a lot of kind of like inspirational stuff out there, but, but the words of Jesus are what I'm, I'm interested in. And so uh, this is our third series as a church. We looked at Acts 2.42 as we started. What did the early church look at? Uh, we've spent the last number of months looking at the core values, I believe, that God's given us to outwork as a church. And, uh, and now we're going to kick into this series. So we're going to be preaching like our way through the text. And uh, it's going to be a little bit more exegetical preaching in the sense that we're just going to look at some of the key things that are in that text, uh, and use that to shape uh, at the structure of our sermons. And I'd wrestled with it, this for a little while, where I was like, man, is this the right thing to hit, uh, you know, in the life of our church? Because I really feel like God's kind of doing this thing in us where he's, he's all about bringing us to life. And I've loved kind of looking at these, the love, uh, sorry, the, the depth and the joy and the peace and all of that, that whole series, because I felt like there was just, it was breathing life into us. And I'd been praying and just and sensing this call to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And I was like, Phew, there's some pretty heavy things in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I don't want to get in people's grill too much about you know, some of uh, the quite challenging things Jesus says in, in this particular sermon. Uh, and so I was wrestling with it. And then I, came, I was asking some of my friends of mine who have you know, PhD theology types, you know, real Bible nerds, like, what Bible commentaries would you suggest I look at to help me unpack the sermon? And one of the top ones that came through was a commentary uh, where the scholar um, basically has, he has, the title of his commentary is The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. And his whole perspective on the Sermon on the Mount is that it's actually this invitation of God to live in his ways so that we would flourish. And when I started looking at that, I was like, oh, Okay, we're all good. <laughs> like, of course, you know, I don't know why I was doubting this. Of course, everything Jesus says is motivated by love and leads us to life. And so the context for the sermon, as we begin, has to be, of course, the context of the whole narrative of Scripture. We've got to remember that when Jesus comes, it's in the context of this great story of redeeming and restoring the brokenness of this world. In Genesis 1 to 11, we learn that God, who is the sole creator of all that is, has set uh, a special love upon humanity as the apex of his creation. And the tension of the story is that humanity fails in both its love for him and love for one another, resulting, result, result, resulting in a darkening of mind and heart and ultimately death, rather than flourishing life. And so God then sets in motion a mysterious, arduous, and long-term plan for the reversal of the state that begins with Abraham, flows through the entire narrative of Scripture, and finds its climax in Jesus. We have to remember that the person who spoke these words was God himself. 
who unbelievably, so humbly came in human flesh into his very creation to call us home, to call us back to this place of flourishing. What does it look like to live in a right relationship with God and with others and with ourselves? It's mind-boggling. The incarnation is, 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 is mind-blowing. <laughs> and we're going to look at that as we head into Christmas because we follow the church calendar. And so as I've followed Jesus and studied his teachings and drawn near to him through prayer, I'm utterly convinced that Jesus invites us into a life that is more beautiful, more authentic, and more faithful to how we're hardwired to live. And as we embrace his way of life, in Sabbath rest that I've talked about, and weekly rhythms that bring uh, life, and choosing to withdraw to pray, to try and slow down the pace of my life. As I choose to embrace the way of Jesus, I find my life filled with more peace and more joy and a greater depth in my love for Him and others that is simply divine. It's actually divine. And it's interesting that I, as I look at my life, I can just see more increasingly in my own story these echoes to my choice to choose to do it my way rather than God's way. So many times in my life, I've chosen to eat the fruit from the tree saying, I want to choose to live my way. And it doesn't lead to life. And so this is, uh, this is the invitation when we listen to Jesus' words is to really sit with them and go, can I not just hear it, but can I respond in such a way that I embrace his way of living so that I can find true life? And so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest teaching. It's found in both in Luke's and Matthew's Gospels. We're going to be working our way through Matthew's version. And so if you've got your Bibles or iPods or Androids or tablets or um, scrolls or whatever you're using, uh, love you to just be opening your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Um, and so this sermon of Jesus presents his moral vision, this way to flourish in life. And it's interesting, as we certainly as we look at the Beatitudes, but in all of this, there's normally this kind of tension between Jesus speaking about a life that we can discover in the present, but also speaking ultimately to the fulfillment and the completion of the story that will come in that age to come when he returns in glory. So you've got kind of both going on here. But ultimately, uh, John Stott's commentary finishes with these words. So Jesus confronts us with himself, sets before us the radical choice between obedience and disobedience, and calls us to an unconditional commitment of mind, will, and life to his teaching. Uh, at the end of the story, which I just want to quickly look at the end of the story, at the end of the sermon, uh, I've mentioned this before, but, but again, you've got to keep this in mind as we hear all of the bits of the sermon. He finishes with the sucker punch. Anyone that hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down. We all sang this, in, well, some of us sang this in Sunday school. The rains came up and the winds went down and the wind went there. And they beat against the house and yet it did not fall because it's had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. That, that lets us stop there for a second. <laughs> Okay. Uh, who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and bit against that house and it fell with the great crash. So Jesus' heart here, his motivation is that you would build a life on a rock. Storms will come. Many of us have gone through big storms already in our life. And the question is, what have we built our house on? 
the teachings and the way of Jesus or have we chosen to eat the fruit and do it our own way? And the evidence of what that is comes in the storm. And uh, so again, we've got to remember that we are invited to uh, hear these words, but actually to apply them. Now, the tricky thing as we explore the sermon is that there's some things that may not be tested in our culture. When we look at turning the other cheek, literally this would happen where soldiers would come up and slap people. And uh, do we have the inner fortitude and that because of our wrestling with things like the Scripture, do we have that sense of I can follow the way of Jesus because I know what it looks like in this this moment. Now, most of us hopefully aren't confronted with that choice because maybe we're not going to get slapped by, you know, the Labour government or whatever, you know. Um, Literally, metaphorically, you can have your opinion on whatever, uh, but literally that's probably not going to happen. But there's heaps in here that we've got to wrestle with now so that when it's tested, we, have, we know what the way of Jesus is. So a lot of it, I'm trying to say, a lot of it's not immediately maybe applicable, but it's good that we've wrestled with it so that when that, that storm hits, we know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be based on the rock now. I'm going to respond the way of Jesus rather than the way of culture, society, or the kingdom of this world. So uh, let's unpack this. Um, I'll just, uh, this is my last opening quote from Scott McKnight. The Sermon of the Mount crystallizes what Jesus gave to his disciples as the new way of life, the kingdom way of life in a world surrounded by the power brokers of empire. From the mountain, the posture of Moses, so a lot of people listening to this and reading this will be like, oh, he's on the mountain again. And the last time that a prophet was on the mountain, God was speaking to him about what the way of Israel, well, that was meant to look like. Now another prophet is up the mountain, Jesus, and he's uttering forth God's will for kingdom people. And as Jesus descended, he gave those who heard the option, uh, who heard of the option of the following. What have I got here? Oh, whatever. That same option stands before every reader of the sermon. So again, it's that whole thing of you've got to choose whether you want to come under this or not whether you want to be a kingdom people or not. So let's, uh, let's unpack this, and we're going to just simply look at the Beatitudes today. Now, for the sake of time, because I've been sitting with this uh, sermon for, for many weeks now, we're going, to, we're going to skim over some stuff and dive into a few other, but where there's no way we can do it justice in however many weeks we're going to look at this. So even today, we're going to look at the Beatitudes, but we're just going to dive into a couple of bits of it. But it's just even lovely hearing these words in the context of this is what it looks like for us to be a kingdom people. So let's read from Matthew chapter 5. Andrew Wordsworth. Come up here, bro. I'm going to make this nice and big, just in case your eyesight... Feel like we need to get a reader of the gospel. <laughs> Here we go, mate. Uh, awesome. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are they who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, 
persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks, Andrew. So, uh, if you go to the next slide, I want to unpack a few things, but uh, one of the key words in here that we're going to have a look at in a second is this word blessed. What does that mean? Um, In fact, let's have a look at that now. So, to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand what is meant by that word blessed. And uh, it's this Greek word, um, makarios, and it's a word, oh man, I've read so much on this blinking word, oh man, like, and there's, you know, there's lectures on what that word means for the original hearers in terms of the history of Israel and Greek thought on the pursuit of happiness and fulfilment. Uh, but the word that is obviously most commonly translated is this word blessed. Some translations have the word wonderful, some translations have the word happy, uh, the uh, means it's got all this kind of the, the Greek has all this kind of has stuff going on where there's layers to what a word can mean, uh, depending on how it's used in sentences or whatnot. Happy, blissful, fortunate, or I love flourishing, they're all words that speak to this thing of blessed. Um, Scott McKnight in his commentary says if we add all this together we get something like this a blessed person is someone who because of a heart for God is promised and enjoys God's favour regardless of their status or countercultural condition so this sense of, of blessing it's like of a heavenly dimension intersection with an earthly reality and in particularly when it comes to God's presence it's this sense of like he's with us there's a blessing in the midst of all of this stuff now, um, so if we can go back or go forward or whatever I've got there, Cass. Again, the way that this uh, is chopped up in terms of different angles is that you've got three uh, beatitudes that speak to the humility of the poor, uh, the poor in spirit, those that mourn the meek. There's three around pursuing justice, uh, hunger and thirst, merciful in the pure in heart, and three on those that are about creating peace, Uh, the peacemakers, those that are persecuted and insulted. And it's very interesting the way that these come together. Now, one of the things that I'm going to focus on especially is this whole thing of of, uh, humility. There's this blessing on people that that are poor in spirit, that have a humble heart. But it's interesting that immediately after that, you've got this thing of, of hungering for justice, of people that show mercy, of people that are pure in heart. Because the danger is sometimes we can think about humility and meekness as being a doormat or being walked over. But Jesus is saying there's a blessing when you have a humble heart, but also you're like, we've got to fix that. Well, that is not right that that has gone on in our history or is going on in our suburbs today, uh, that the poor are getting ripped off or that there's been betrayal or there's broken, whatever it may be. It's like there's that... So you know, and it's like you may get persecuted because you're starting to speak up for those that have no voice, and so that's not like there's a strength in what Jesus is saying here, but he opens with humility. So it's the to to be a Christian is to walk and through the doorway of humility to say I need Jesus. 
proud people don't need Jesus, you're self-contained. We come to the table every week in humility, saying, I need your body broken, and I need your blood shed for me, and I'm going to receive that. And so, but the context for what Jesus is saying here is a brutal society with the, with the Roman government that has occupied their land, colonized them, and were very strategic about how they did that because they allowed them to continue practicing their religion. So it's the Pax Ramona, the Roman peace, was like, okay, continue doing your weird little things, guys, but you cross any lines around what it means for us to be your governors and to have your land, and boom, the Roman system's going to come and really hit you hard. It was an unjust, cruel thing, and... Um, and uh, Many indigenous people resonate strongly with the Israelite people as they read the scriptures for what they've gone through. It's uh, my friend Joseph McCauley, who spoke here a number of uh, about a month or so ago now. He used this illustration as he was unpacking the context for these Beatitudes, where he talked about the movie Ben Hur. Now, um, so I, you know, spent. Uh, I, I'd never seen the original, um, and, I'm, and thankfully I've also dodged the bullet of seeing the, the remake of uh, the recent years. Um, but it's obviously one of these big classics, and so in preparation for my sermon, I watched uh, half of the movie this week in my office, which, don't tell Jen, uh, was really good and relaxing while she looked after the children. Um, and, uh, but basically, what's interesting, so you've got this guy Judah Ben-Hur, and uh, he is uh, this Jewish prince. He's a man of means and reputation, even though he was living in Roman-occupied Jerusalem. And as the story unfolds, he, through an accident, winds up killing this new Roman governor that's marching through the city. A tile slips off the top of the building. Some of you guys have seen the movie. And, ex- and it wasn't even him that did it. It's his sister. And, uh, and so it's like, and this governor gets killed and the guards to storm his house, arrest him, and he's thrown into prison even though he was innocent. And his best friend is, uh, is now in charge of the garrison, the Roman garrison. And his best friend before this, they'd had some arguments about the Roman occupation and about uh, Ben-Hur helping this new Roman leader out to like, stop the people revolting against the occupation of their land. So they'd had a falling out. And so he just within seconds, like to stop his family being killed, he was sent into exile and had to row boats and, uh, and was a slave. I mean, in, in, in a second, the Roman system comes in and destroys his life, unjustly, absolutely unjustly. And this is the context for, when, for how Jesus is talking about this Roman system. You can't stand up to Caesar in the day and age that Jesus is speaking about. Caesar's all-powerful. He can do as he wishes, have a slave beaten to death, sleep with whoever he desires, give food to some, starve others. There's no police to call. There's no judge to hear your case. The system is what it is. There's no alternative. Spartacus attempts a revolt, defeated in battle, 6,000 rebels are crucified. I mean, it's just a, it's a really heavy place. And so in that system, blessed are the landowners, blessed are the rich, Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are those that have status. Blessed are those with all the goodies who can distribute them or cash them in as they will. Blessed are those who play the system. The client kings of Rome, the appointed priests of Rome, the selected tax collectors of Rome, those who've got into bed with Rome, so to speak, they are the one that are blessed. It's according to society. 
And then Jesus stands up and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they are the ones, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek. So the poor in spirit, uh, Luke's version of this has, just has the word blessed are the poor. So, you know, of course theologians debate for, you know, decades, is it economically poor or is it poor inside, you know? And uh, it's both, just to save you hours of research, it's both, it's both, it's both. There's this blessing that God gives it's like it's an upside down kingdom Jesus is inaugurating here where it's not the wealthy but the people that are like at the heart of the kingdom of God the blessed ones are those who are poor in spirit which means I am depending on God I'm not just trying to do it my own way and this ties in to those that are mourn and those that are meek uh, I have a sense of uh, of um, so the self-dependent or the wealthy oppressor is at odds of the economy of God's kingdom. Jesus spoke about this a few times. This is why the offering, you know, again, I'm not going to push this too hard because I know that people have been very abused by this stuff in the past. But I'm personally speaking, I'm passionate about being generous because I want to, I don't want to get caught up in going, I can control my own destiny because of all of this money I've got. So I'm going to choose to give this to God as a sign that I'm poor in spirit, that I want to, I'm going to rely on Him. So it's a choice of the will a lot of the time. Like I, I choose to Yahoo. We're now going to take up our offering Yahoo, but it's because I want to, I want to live under God's blessing, in terms of the the kingdom of God. Uh, so the self-dependent or wealthy oppressor is at odds with the economy of the kingdom. This is confronting for the people listening to this. It's like this is a whole new paradigm. This is God himself saying this is what my people look like. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those that go through the deep water of grief. And listen, and those who love others in such a way that they feel what others are feeling as they journey through those deep waters. There's a blessing on, you know, if you're going, I've been through this. I mean, I, I buried a mate last Friday, Friday week, you know, and uh, interestingly, you know, I'm sitting with the sermon because I've been reading it and rereading it and rereading it. And I'm, so I'm sitting in this place of mourning, going, this is a, a place of blessing. Why? Because my heart is soft to the presence of God, because so much stuff's stripped away. You know, when you're mourning, you, you, you're just barely, you know, holding it together as a win. And, and most of the time you're not. And there's something about that vulnerable, raw place that God loves. He is so present in that place of mourning. And I felt blessed because I felt the tangible love of God surrounding me in a place of mourning. And, and if you're not going through that yourself, and of course that's not situation normal, but that's the exception to life, thankfully. But every one of us go through seasons of deep mourning. Know that God's blessing rests on you during that time. And it rests on you when you sit with those that mourn. You just sit with them. Blessed are the meek. Uh, this word, uh, Greek word here, praros, translated as meek, can be translated as gentle or humble or mild. And it's a difficult to translate word because biblical meekness is not weakness, but rather Listen, refers to exercising God's strength under his control. 
So it's like I'm, I'm not just doing my own thing my own way, but the strength God is giving me, I'm exercising under God's will and direction. Now, this is something that is utterly life-transforming if we can get our heads around there's a blessing on those that are humble, on those that are meek. Like, this is a totally countercultural, and Jesus really, uh, there's so much here that helps us to uh, live as Jesus' people if we get our heads around some of this. Uh, I, until three weeks ago, was part of uh, the Air New Zealand uh, system where you can have different privileges depending on your air miles. Now, I haven't flown that much, but my best, one of my best mates in Christchurch, this guy Stefan Lendl, he flies just crazy international miles. For, he works for Hamilton Jet. And so a year ago, he said, Sam, I'm, I'm now gold elite. Now, that's really up there. And one of the perks that a gold elite person can give is they can choose one other person to give gold elite perks to. Now, normally it's their wife or partner or whatever, but his wife just doesn't travel. And he, he knew that I'd be doing a little bit of travel because we were moving up here and I was going to be speaking a few different places before we started this thing. So he said, I want you to have it. So I was like, hallelujah, I'll take it, man. And, uh, and so I had uh, Koru Lounge access. I could, show, I could choose where I would sit on the plane, so I was close to the doors. I had, um, I had bag drop where I could put my bag like, as I walked on. The rest of the peasants had to like, check it in. I could, just, I could just put it on the plane, and then as I walk off, I could get the bag. And, uh, and it was epic. Now, it expired. I went down to Christchurch for that funeral, and it was the first trip I took without it. And it was, I was a broken man, you know. I was like, oh, I had to pay for my own beer, and, you know, my bag had to, just between you and me, actually, because I still got the tag, I did check it in anyway on the, well, they, think, they, they didn't check. I was a bit nervous, but I got away with it. You know, I confess your sin. Um, but I tell you what, one of the best moments of this, uh, of this perk was I uh, went over to Cambodia last year to do a missions trip, and uh, and. Flying domestically is nice, but when you go international, it's another experience when you're gold elite. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, went to, Singapore, uh, to Cambodia via Singapore and uh, had a beautiful week there helping up some church planners in Cambodia. And then on the way home, uh, I was really looking forward to the lounge in Singapore because I was there for quite a long layover. So this is a picture of, um, the, of what I... Um, so the rest of you guys, right... The rest of you guys are in this horrific, you know, environment down there, and I, this is literally the, the business class lounge of Singapore Airport for New Zealand Elite Gold members. The lady didn't believe me <laughs> when I first went up to the counter to go in there. She's like, and I couldn't find my card. It took me ages, and then eventually I found it, and uh, yeah, it's because I look like this, but anyway... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Friday. And uh, but you know, I walked in there and it was like, oh man, this is insane. Like everything's free, everything. And I've got chefs just churning out beautiful meals the whole time. I ate till I was sore, you know. Um, and then it's like they have showers and stuff, long luxurious shower with faucets in all different places. And it's like it was just amazing. And then like I, I just you know, but it was it was interesting because I just left Cambodia. Right, can you imagine that? Like it was like bang. And, uh, and I've been for some reason reflecting on Jesus. A number of times later in the Gospels, Jesus, he bangs on a lot about humility. Become like little children, you know. The greatest will be the least, the least will be the... I've been thinking a lot about humility and, um, and the fact that in the Bible you don't... 
I'd always thought, oh, you know, some people are humble and some people aren't. You know, you meet people, you're like, oh, you just feel like you're just naturally just a humble person. And you know, people are like, you're an arrogant git, you know. Uh, but, but then when you look at the Bible, it talks about clothing ourselves with humility. as something you, you put on. You can clothe yourself with a humble posture. So I'm sort of sitting in the lounge enjoying myself, but like resting with this. And all around the lounge were these people serving, you know. And so this is a bit of a weird photo, but I was sitting there and moved to tears because I was like, and according to the Beatitudes, these are the greatest people in that lounge. And they are, and like I couldn't even make eye contact with them. Like I'm trying to like, because here's the thing, folks, if, you, if you're like, I want to be meek, I want to be humble, how you treat people in the service industry is a good reflection of where you're at in terms of humility. And I've seen way too many Christians talk down to people in the service industry like they're above them. When you get your head around the Beatitudes and the teaching of Jesus, it's upside down. They are more like Jesus than you are because of the place that they are kind of operating with. The, and that, so I'm looking at these guys and I'm trying to thank them and treat them with dignity and, and they almost couldn't look at me, you know? And I was so blown away by the thought that, like, all of a sudden, this started to make sense. Like, this, now, I'm going to pursue justice, and I'm going to seek righteousness, and I'm going to fight that oppressive system that's destroying lives. But how we do it is more important than what we do. Yeah. How we do it is just everything. And it's with that humble posture, a meekness that, that of heart that says, I can pursue justice with kindness. I can, I can do it in such a way that it's not trying to beat people down, but it's, this, it's the subversive way of Jesus. Because in our culture, which is very like the Roman culture, the powerful and the greedy and the, I'm vying for promotion and I'm trying to become somebody of power, that's how we think we can get ahead in life. Jesus says, no, it's upside down. The beatitude is such, is saying that it's the humble. These are the people that inherit the earth. There's a humility here that Jesus is pointing to that is just, Stunning. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up, James 4 verse 10. And again, what I mentioned before, 1 Peter 5 verse 5. Submit yourselves to your elders, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour, blessing to the humble. So it's a, so as I've been thinking about this, I'm not going to name any names, but I was, I was just in my office this week thinking of people in our church who have a humble spirit. And I want to say over you, you, the problem with you guys, you don't recognize it because it's, you know, it's humility. <laughs> and, and I don't, I can speak about humility because I've got this hashtag hypocrite and transition thing going on in our church. So it's like, no one's qualified to write a book on humility, you know, humility and how I got there is just a paradoxical <laughs> title of my, um, how to be more humble like me, you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, you just start talking about it, humility runs away. But it's, um, 
But I was thinking of people in our church, and I want us to be a people, if you want to clothe yourself in humility, if you want to be a meek person, you've got to start opening your eyes to seeing it in our church and in the culture around us and start coveting it. I want that. I don't want the power or the status. I want to be subversive. Everything about the Beatitudes is very subversive to the occupying force that it's under. Very subversive. And Jesus lives out every single one of these Beatitudes and ultimately takes them to the cross. That looks like foolishness, but it's the victory of God. Because he never once retaliates. He never once uh, does the violence that it has been done to him. The justice of God looks like him absorbing it upon himself and extending mercy and forgiveness, and you can't control that when you're in power. And what happens is because of the love of God revealed through the cross, there is just a new kingdom that is broken into the world. And so these, uh, this is what we have come to, to be a part of is this revolution of uh, the Jesus people. Isn't it good, like just to get into the Beatitudes? Like, oh my gosh, Jesus, you're onto something here. This is what I signed up for. Deeply challenging, but you know, I'm kind of keen because I can see. And and honestly, the more that I've tried to outwork this in my life in its very early days, the more I feel like I'm flourishing, because it's not about. Can we go back to the scripture case? It's not about the, the trying to grab onto the, the power or whatnot. It's just embracing a dependence on God. It's feeling the blessing of God and the comfort of God in that place of mourning. And it's going, there's a freedom and a peace that comes when you are embracing meekness, humility, gentleness. There's a freedom that comes in your spirit because you don't have to strive anymore. You don't have to prove yourself to people. You don't have to try and grab and hold on to power or to compromise your convictions or your uh, ethics to try and have some sort of status in a place, you can choose the narrow way of Jesus that brings us to a flourishing life. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be filled, those who extend forgiveness, kindness, compassion, the helpers and the healers. There's a blessing on your life. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's the people whose love for God and their neighbour is steadfast and true. That's their motivation. Blessed are the peacemakers. These are the people that are bringing shalom into workplaces, into schools, into homes, into dysfunctional family places, into tricky spots. The people that speak up against the system. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Those who are blessed are those who are engaged to the point that the system starts to turn on them and work against them, even tries to bite them to, to tell them to shush. Blessed are the people that are persecuted. Blessed are those, Jesus is saying effectively, that go against the grain of Rome, the system of Rome, the Pax Ramona, the peace of Rome, and instead stand as healers and helpers and peacemakers and shalom makers of God. It's a radically countercultural, upside down way of Jesus. But it's interesting because all of these promises that come, blessed are, because every single one comes with a promise of comfort or of, uh, of inheritance or uh, of being filled. Or of, there's a sense of that, like the blessing isn't just out there. There's something like when you are choosing to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like it's a battle that may be your whole life, but there will be times in your life that you are filled because you're like, because you will win some battles because God is with you. 
And so if you're, you know, you're passionate about um, you know, anti-trafficking stuff or you know, we've got a lot of brokenness in the Bay and, if you, you know, and so we, we need Christians to rise up and many have and say we want to you know, fight the alcoholism or the uh, brokenness. In it. That's not going to be easy but there'll be moments you know, where you're filled because there's these little moments where you see the kingdom of God break in and that system gets subverted because you've chosen the way of Jesus. And so you'll be filled. So all of these have a promise. And, but it's both a promise in the present and it's a promise for the future. So Jesus is saying there's a blessing over the people of God that follow the way of God in the present, still with the Roman system there. But there will be a day when the world is restored the way it should always have, always was meant to be. And the people of God will rise victorious with resurrection bodies. And it'll, it'll be like, oh, and, and, but again, there is, there is, we don't talk about this a lot, but there is the promise of reward in that age to come. Yeah. How good's that? Now, I'm not going to just do it for that because I don't want to live with some escapist theology that says, oh, if only we get there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm going to fight today to be a person of peace, a person of justice, a person that stands up for the poor, but I'm going to do it with a meekness of heart, poor in spirit, and embracing those that mourn. I'm going to do it that way because that's the way of Jesus. And so how we do it matters. And this is the opening of the Beatitudes really speaks to that. And so there's a sense of satisfaction, of peace, of freedom in the present as we embrace the Beatitudes. And there's a promise of reward in the age to come. So I want to just say this morning that you're blessed. Like if you find yourself clearly in one of those camps, if you're going through a time of mourning, if you're going through a time where you're, you're economically poor, if you're going through a time where you're frustrated because of injustice that's occurred because of the broken world we live in, whatever it may be, just know that God calls you blessed today. And may you know his presence in that place. May you know his peace and may you know that he is who he says he is. He's risen from the dead. He's defeated the power of death. And so we can rest in his promises and that we can embrace his way and receive that blessing, knowing that in the age to come, we're going to be rewarded. What an amazing hope. Let's stand together and invite the Spirit of God just to minister to us this morning.